Hello and welcome to another SPAC Insider Podcast, where we bring an independent eye in interviewing the targets of SPAC transactions and their SPAC partners. Sustainable materials are starting to take a bite out of the share of single-use plastics in circulation, but replacing the full $600 billion plastics market is going to take more innovation and much more capital. I'm Nick Clayton, and this week my colleague Marlena Haddad and I speak with Brian Gordon, President and COO of Verde Bioresins, and Jim Gun Kim, Chairman and CEO of TLGY Acquisition Corporation. The two announced a $433 million combination in June. Brian explains why he believes Verde is closer to scaling up a viable plastics replacement than many of its competitors, while Jim Gun explains how TLGY designed this transaction to be accountable to private equity-style benchmarks and also be attractive to SPAC investors through the DSPAC process. Take a listen. So, Brian, you know, when we talk about creating sustainable replacements for plastic products, just how big of a market are we talking about? And at what point will sustainable plastics be making up uh, a major part of market share? Today, the overall market for plastics in general is about $600 billion a year. The segment that we focus on is $300 billion a year, which represents polyethylene and polypropylene. Now, when you take a look at sustainable plastics like bioplastics, some of which are biodegradable, some of which aren't, they represent less than 2% of the overall market. So while it's not a huge amount in terms of overall percentage, in terms of dollars, it is quite large. It's in in excess of $10 billion a year. But our products are geared towards renewable and sustainable products as a replacement for traditional plastics rather than just a replacement for other bioplastics. Got it. And, you know, Jin Goon, you and your team at TLGY brought really diverse expertise to your target search. So I'm just interested in, in as you were looking at the market, what were some of the major factors that drew you towards Verde and the sustainable materials sector? That's a great question. So we are really private equity in our DNA and the way that we conduct our business. And uh, we looked at over 50 to 100 uh, deals, depending on what you count as uh, deals that we looked at. Uh, and we decided that Verde is probably the best thing that we could back in this market for a number of reasons. But typically, as a private equity, we'll be looking at this. We are looking at really the long-term returns in our investment horizons. Nobody can tell what's going to happen even in the next six months. But over the next three to five years, we're looking for what we call the unicorns in the, ma- in the making. So what I call also the... Uh, Diamonds in the rough. So my expertise, if you look at my background, is at TPG and also as a, a transformational CEO. I would find these great companies that are at the cusp of becoming multi-billion, or even in some cases, uh, in the case of Lining, uh, you know, we brought it from a seven hundred million dollars to thirty billion dollars. So we are able to find those companies and really help them grow. So that is really driven by that investment thesis and. Often the way we look at this is versus a macro. Like Brian says, it's a $600 billion macro, which is, uh, is going to be replaced at some point because of regulatory and other issues that is pushing everybody to think about uh, stopping the uh, plastic pollution and really replacing with a uh, sustainable alternative. We looked at what, what is it that is going to uh, allow someone to actually go after the market and then Brian will talk a little more about this, but it is something that really meets all the requirements of the of the uh, uh, the industry. For example, it has to be scalable. Uh, it has to have all of the applicational requirements that are met. It has to be 
uh, cost-effective, and it also has to have some of the uh, qualities of the what we call the drop-in, which is it has to be able to go right into the infrastructure that's already there, as opposed to replace completely what's you know all the plants that's already created for the six hundred billion dollar market. So as a private equity, we actually went in with industry experts. In particular, we have a former G Plastics um, uh, executive who is very deep into this bioplastics uh, world. And we have done field field um, due diligence. We've also talked to the customers and we've also talked to their um, main partner in the distribution and really came to realize that this solution that they are presenting to the market is one of the viable and the first uh, replacement for the the overall plastics market. And you will be able to take it from a 2% market share today to something that is much bigger. Great. And can you walk us through where you are in the process of developing polyurethane and what are some of the major milestones that you've already gotten over and about how far out are you from getting it into products on shelves? Sure. So Verde Bioresins makes a bio-based, for the most part, curbside recyclable and landfill biodegradable product under the brand name polyurethane. It's a resin that's used to produce a number of products. So our focus has been on replacement of polyethylene and polypropylene-based products. To give you a sense, we've worked with some of the largest converters in the industry. So in other words, a lot of biopolymer companies can make a single product, but making 100,000 or a million products, you really need to scale that and show that your products are economically feasible, show that your products can be dropped into existing manufacturing equipment. And that's what we've achieved. So for example, the street sheets have been extruded at companies that make over 500 million pounds of extruded sheet a year, and they've been converted into a thermoform in at a company that produces over 100 million pounds of thermoform a year. So that was our verification that, yes, the products work and they work in volume capacity. Ultimately, things that we're very excited about are we can not only make single-use products, but we can also make durable goods out of polyurethane. And we've been working on everything from injection molding to blow molding blown film and thermoforming. And we have several other products that'll be coming out in the near future. We have over $250 million worth of sales pipeline in process, and that's growing every week. And so we're working with some of the largest multinationals in the world to roll out polyurethane and give them an economically feasible, renewable and sustainable solution. A lot of people think about commercialization and scalability as an issue in this industry because this is a very exciting industry. A lot of investments and attention have been given over the last five to 10 years, but it really hasn't really picked up because of those issues. I just want to make sure that we're being very uh, clear in communicating that we're not an R&D company. What this is, is really just using all of the existing infrastructure, all of the commercially available building blocks ingredients, and not trying to create new polymers, which are the building block chemicals, but it is really trying to make what is already there into a biodegradable resin. So because it's a resin company, it doesn't require all of the complicated R&D and commercialization scalability. As Brian just talked about, what he's doing is not trying to create his own uh, trial manufacturing and then hope to scale that when somebody buys over to large quantities. He's going straight to people that are producing today 100 million pounds of stuff 
And in their facility, he's just letting them make it. The whole scalability issue, the ready for shelf issue, that all those problems go away when you're working with a solution at the very end of the supply chain. And so just going off of that, how does polyurethane compare to some of the other bioresin products coming to market on both price and capabilities? We support all bioresins. We think that there's a place for them in the industry. But most bioresins today, you know, they've taken years to develop because they're developing a polymer. They've taken, if not decades, they've taken hundreds of millions, if not a billion dollars plus to, to develop the, the capital and infrastructure in order to scale if they can ever scale. And they have some other downfalls that pitfalls, let's say, that are there. They tend to be brittle and they tend to be temperature sensitive. So ultimately, and then the last aspect of that is a lot of those products, you need to take your, your entire conversion, your entire warehouse that makes a product and convert it into new equipment the entire warehouse to to make those products. So here we've come with a product that is not temperature sensitive. It's a true replacement for traditional plastic. You can just drop it into existing manufacturing. And our price point is somewhere in the $1.80 range right now, eventually going significantly lower than that. But even at our current price point, we're significantly lower than other bioplastics. To We're even half the price, if not less, than some of them on the market today. Got it. And so are there any applications for polyurethane that particularly excels over the competition and any that you likely wouldn't pursue for it? Yeah. So in terms of durable goods production, our products are all shelf stable. So they um, biodegrade when introduced to a microbe rich environment like a landfill. So ultimately, our products are shelf stable. We can create durable goods that most bioplastics companies can't. We can create life hinges, which we haven't seen in bio-based biodegradable products yet. And then we can also compete in the single-use products. So ultimately, we're working on things like foams and coatings that are not currently in the polyurethylene catalog, but will be shortly. So we're not really going after the bioplastics market. We're going after the traditional plastics market. And so we're, we're a little more expensive, but ultimately, we believe that the brands and ownership care about sustainability and renewable products. And it's time for them to start stepping up. And based on our discussions with all these companies and the testing that's going on right now of polyurethane products, we believe that they will make that commitment. Great. And you've also established some strategic relationships with Brasschem and Vinmar. Can you talk a little bit about how those partnerships are helping you with your go-to-market strategy? So Brascom has been wonderful to us. We are currently purchasing product from them and will continue to, and, and they've committed to support us as we grow. Uh, they understand our forecasts and are working to provide us with materials that we need in order to ensure that we can meet that going on a going forward basis. Vinmar has also been a truly exceptional partner as well. They are international. They, they're, they're in 110 markets worldwide. They have 55 offices globally. And I believe that we're the only product of this kind in their portfolio today. We started launching with them in Binmar Polymers America to meet demand for North America. And ultimately, we expect to work on projects with them worldwide. 
Great. And are there any areas where you feel like additional strategic relationships might help fill any gaps in, in what you're trying to do right now? We have great partnerships today. We could always use additional support, both in terms of supply of raw materials as well as um, distribution long term. But ultimately, we're, we're very happy where we are today. We believe that we're in a good position to be able to execute our plan. But we would like to look for more um, and different bio-based materials. And we expect to um, work with both Brascom and other partners to provide us with the ability to go beyond hundreds of millions of pounds and into a really impactful percentage of the plastics market world worldwide in the long term. Great. And what kind of regulatory constraints do developers of new bioresin products face? And on the other end, are there any government policies incentivizing this work that you've been benefiting from thus far? So in terms of um Regulations, what we've looked to do is one of the commitments that we made from the beginning was to ensure that all the products that we place into our, our polyurethylene resins are FDA Title 21 food contact compliant so that we don't run into issues with you know food because ultimately packaging and the food industry is a large part of our overall product. Unless we're talking about making an electrostatic dissipative tray for the semiconductor or electronics industry or a bag that's anti-static or electrostatic dissipative, all of our materials are FDA Title 21 food contact compliant. And that really gets us to a good place overall with compliance. We're starting to evaluate our options in terms of the USDA Bio Preferred program. Um, which is something that could be important to us in the long run. I think most of the incentives are geared towards uh, companies making liquids like fuels, et cetera. But we hope that that changes and opens up the market to us in the future. Yeah, in, in addition to the uh, direct incentives, I wish the biggest benefit from regulatory pressures, and it's obviously something that everybody knows about, is that governments and companies have very strong intent to fight against both the environmental impact of the traditional plastics, as well as all the polluting impact that is obviously everywhere that you see and recycle as well as the uh, compostability is a limited solution. It doesn't really solve most of the $600 billion uh, of plastics that's going out there. So there's a lot of regulation that is right now pushing to solve that problem. Right. And so I'm curious to hear how much prices fluctuate on the raw materials that you use as input. Prices, like like with all commodities, prices can fluctuate and, and due to an extent. Fortunately for us, some of our vendors that are strategic hedge. And as we expand, we will look at establishing hedging options to enable us to protect our, our costs. But ultimately, our margins are good right now and we expect them to grow over time as we scale. Great. And so just moving over to the deal, kind of a question for both of you really is just, you know, what made, on your case, Brian, Verde decide that now was the right time for it to go public? And from the SPAC perspective, sort of what was the, the point at which you saw as being the, the evidence of a real inflection point here? And, and also, Brian, uh, I guess when you're looking at your options, what made the, the SPAC route stand out to you? 
For Verde, we were very impressed by the TLGY team led by Jin Goon and what they've their their backgrounds and what they've done in the past and their dedication to getting this SPAC public and getting a commitment to us to achieve what we need in order to to grow our business. The reason for us to to go the public route was primarily to achieve the funding that we need in today's market, um, which will enable us to grow to hundreds of millions of pounds in our Midwest facility. That's the focus of those funds. So it'll enable us to scale quickly and aggressively and to take Verde to the next level. On the second part of your question, in my previous life as a part of the investment committee at TPG, we've looked at many, many deals. And also we've obviously, as naturally an investor, uh, looking at a lot of the other angel and other investment opportunities, just being in that uh, investment and deal world, you know, you get to understand what are the businesses that are going to make it and what are the businesses that just won't get there. Like I said, you know, we looked at the technology and what it takes to replace traditional uh, plastics, and you're almost like trying to replace water. So plastics is one of the most scalable, the low cost, most well-developed and low margin efficient ecosystem that you have out there. It is like water and you want to place, replace water. You better have something that is better, right? In terms of its functionality, the cost, the scalability, all the supporting infrastructures and all of that. And all the solutions out there, they may be a great VC story where you're getting the first early round funding, but how are they going to ever become a replacement for traditional plastic? If you really think about it, you say there's just very little chance these things are going to scale or that people are going to be willing to pay four or five times in order to get these things to be massively deployed or to change out their plants, right? All of the things that we're using right now, the entire ecosystem with billions and billions of dollars of plant rehalters to so that you can you know, try out another product. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, you know, and, and looking at it also, as you were discussing there, some of the, the long-term viability of some companies in this space uh, from a, a kind of a private investment perspective, looking at the range of DSPACs we've seen over the past few years, the public markets have also been hard on a lot of new technology and growth companies, but sustainable materials DSPACs have actually been more resilient than I would say like a lot of the fintechs and, and EV companies that we've seen go public through SPACs. So, I mean, just what did you see in kind of watching the public markets reaction to some of these companies hitting the market and, and how did that plan to your valuation of, of Verde as a target? Yeah, so in our 8K investor presentation, we detail out the way that we thought of our valuation. And the model that we've created is a private equity model where we're trying to get everybody to win, all the shareholders. So for example, what we've done uh, along with Target uh, Verde is that we put a lot of our economics in the future so that only when the shareholders are investing in the public market, there is a pipe or common does very well in the tune of 35% IRR, that's 35% every year for three to four years, then big part of the economics will actually come to play, right? So this is created in a way that is really a win-win. So if you look at um, the way that we value the company, you're absolutely right. Even in this terrible market, you see that there's a lot of support for companies in this sustainability space, mainly because the whole world is focused on solving this problem. It has to get resolved. There's a big demand. Right. And the time is massive. We're talking about six hundred billion dollar market potential. And there really isn't a survival solution. So people are hoping that somebody, one of these guys will make it. But if you look at the, the, their economics, you know, some of the public companies are losing a lot of money. Our economic unit economics is one of the things that we really focus on as a private equity uh, investor. 
is that we say, what is a unit economics? What is a cash flow profile? Why is this a good business? Those are the things that we really look at uh, deeply. And you look at some of these other public companies, they're losing like 50% negative EBITDA, for example, right? So that's not great uh, as a business. These are things that maybe people are not paying as much attention. But despite that, despite all that, they're still getting a pretty good, you know, pretty good um, evaluation, even in this market. So why is that? Because of the massive potential. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned the you know the way that the structure of this deal puts a lot of the the value into an earnout that's you know conditional, which is interesting. But also the transaction has an interesting mechanism for TLGY shareholders as well in terms of the the incentives involving the, the warrants and sort of a tontine structure. Could you touch upon that a little bit and, and what some of the upside is for investors in the SPAC? Sure. I think we're very different the way that we look at the spec world. I mean, spec is a very difficult instrument. It's a very complex instrument. It's a blank sheet of paper. It's whatever you make out of it. And a lot of people walk into this thinking that it's an easy business where you just basically make a fee and you don't really have to do much. It's actually not true. You know, for a long, long time, the spec world has been, remained very small and about 60% of the specs actually didn't make it work. Because if they didn't have the right deal and they didn't have the right kind of valuation, they actually didn't work. This was pre-2019. So it's always been the case. All these things have told us that spec has to be a highly complex instrument and it needs to have a differentiated business model. So that's what we created. So one of the things that we have done is that we said, okay, redemption will be a problem unless you create a naturally adjusting mechanism that, in a sense, gives the people who are not redeeming the benefit, not the people who participate in IPO. So a big part of the IPO benefit is actually reserved and not given until those people who don't redeem stay. So what happens is you have a massive pool of warrants that actually gets given to only the people that right, don't redeem, which becomes a massive you know, upside. But we also allow that to be converted into common because a lot of the people who are participating in the spec world, they don't understand the investment return. So they, don't, they may not actually value warrant. So they like to have something that trades in the market at a better price. So five to one ratio of exchange allows you to either bet on the investment or just bet on the public price. So what, what they trade at, in a way, the simple way to look at it, and it's all in the AK investment uh, presentation, is that we have 6 million shares of Warren that could become a 1.2 million shares of uh, common that is given to however many investors are left at the end, right, if, uh, after redemption. So if there was a 90% redemption, you'll get downside protected to about four bucks, right? So your cost basis actually goes down to below four. But at the same time, if the price were to run, then you have a 2.5x return. So if the price were to go to $30, your return is actually 2.5 times more than that. And there really isn't any instrument that achieves both the downside case and an upside case right, without diluting and issuing more economics because everything is already paid up at IPO. We're using all the things that we paid upfront to benefit and make sure that we uh, have rewards for people who don't redeem. So it's a very unique instrument. And it is really thinking about in any deal we do in a complex transformational deals in private equity is that you try to solve a problem with the structure. So the problem we're trying to solve here is in a high redemption environment, how do you create an instrument that actually works to encourage people to stay so that people could invest before pre, uh, uh, before DSPAC, right? As opposed to today, the biggest issue we have right now is that even if the deal is great, nobody wants to invest before DSPAC because they think that it's going to all go down and they're just going to wait until the DSPAC is finished because the price will get reset and they'll almost always be able to invest at a low price. 
So with our structure, we're giving them the reason to invest before dispatch. And just going off of that, you mentioned in your announcement materials that you plan to put together a pipe for this transaction before close and already have commitments from Humanitario. So I'm interested to hear how those continued fundraising efforts are going and about how much does Verde need to hit its near-term goals? Yeah, so one of the uh, reasons we decided to back Verde in this market is because Verde is such a great unit economics business that early on, they're going to get to a very quickly a cash flow positive and operating margin positive business. In fact, in our work is we talk about year two, where they can actually achieve that. To get there, they really only need about $15, $20 million. They already have the capacity, but they need some more capital as an operating company to be able to actually continue to grow. But they need $55 million in order to deliver a plan that is much, much bigger than that. Obviously, we're talking about numbers that is you know, much bigger than what we have disclosed. So that's about how much money they need. So yeah. we are talking to mainly uh, the strategics who understand this business, including some of the partners that we're working with. We expect them to be quite interested in uh, coming into the pipe, along with uh, investors who are fundamental investors who would want to back a company like this and participate in their uh, exciting journey. So that is the effort that we're making right now. And hopefully with that, be able to raise a lot of the ca- capital that we really need. In addition to the structure that we just created, which hopefully will also give us significantly more capital so that Verde could uh, deliver on their plan. And looking forward beyond the DSPAC, you know, what are some of the major milestones that you think investors should be keeping an eye on in terms of news with Verde as it continues to progress in its plans in the coming years? So before DSPAC, we expect some major announcements to come out uh, around their customer acquisitions and other partnerships and other uh, market uh, expansion opportunities and and achievements. And then, of course, one of the biggest things that will happen after the DSPAC is a continuous growth of that and how we are actually changing the game right, by allowing the traditional plastics to finally have a viable solution to replace itself. So that the world could become uh, was much less polluting for place. But Brian, why don't you share some of your short-term and long-term milestones? Yeah, I mean, from a economic perspective, obviously the significant revenue that we're looking at achieving in year two, plus the positive EBITDA margins at, by year two, I believe, are in the fifteen to twenty percent EBITDA range. Those are exciting to us from a more fundamental perspective, our goal from a research and development standpoint manufacturing is developing greater biodegradation applications, moving from landfill biodegradation to marine biodegradation, significantly reducing our costs overall so that we can pass on those savings to our customers and get closer and closer to parity with traditional plastics. And then, of course, I touched on before, implementing additional types of polyurethylene, one to replace coatings on paper to make that biodegradable, and another to um, replace foam, which is a huge challenge. And and we're, we're getting very close to that. And so overall, what do you see as the most exciting thing coming out of this sustainable materials space that maybe not enough people are talking about right now? For for me, having renewable and sustainable products are very important, but having products that can be curbside recycled under, you know, your curbs, you you put them in your your backyard, you know, trash and recycling container 
and you move your recycling container to, to the front of your house and it gets picked up. If any products are recycled in that container, then ours would be recycled with it. That's huge. Second part is 85% of all plastics in the U.S. end up in a landfill. And that's why our focus is on landfill biodegradation rather than some of the other focuses right now, because at the end of the day, that's where it's going. Yeah. And for me, I think there was a study that I can't remember exactly where it came from, but at least in countries like Korea or Japan, a lot of that has been taken care of. But if you go to places like Southeast Asia, what happens is, is that there's a huge amount of those uh, plastics waste that's being pumped into the, the ocean. I mean, I've saw some data which says a big part of the global ocean polluting comes from countries like that. And so if you think about it, the only solution where it's cost effective for countries like that with a lot of population and a very poor uh, per capita, um, you know, uh, how do you get them to actually solve this problem, participate in this? The only solution is biodegradability, natural biodegradability. There is no other way that you're going to make sure that those things don't end up in the oceans. And what happens is that those things break down, they become microplastics, and then they're going to end up in your body and in our body and all our children's bodies and everything that we eat, right? It's just going to go everywhere in the world. And this is something we have to fix. And I think the only way that it's going to get fixed is to do a truly biodegradable product that replaces the traditional plastics. And they have to be biodegradable in the natural environment.